The subject for the evening talk is study and practice. Sometimes when we take an opportunity to step back from our everyday world that we are experiencing, it gives us some real opportunity <coughs> to reflect on the circumstances on our, of our life and the general patterns and directions in which we are going and kind of direction we are moving in. And sometimes the way that this uh, expresses itself is, of course, such as here with a retreat form, a workshop for others, it's some time in the countryside, it's uh, going, uh, travelling, it's moving out of a relationship or out of a work or field of study or whatever. And so through the actual action of stepping back or away from, it creates some opportunity in our life to find some space and in the space of that we have some opportunity for reflection, either intentionally uh, cultivated or occurring out of the necessities of the heart and mind to understand the circumstances in which we are living. And <coughs> in that, and you and I may well have observed and noticed in ourselves in these days here that we have had thoughts about what we are doing with our life, where it is going, our concerns, our values, our priorities. And sometimes in the process of those reflections, with the thought arises about making some uh, changes. But very easily, the, the thought which arises and pa passes, that we see it come and we see it go, and because we're observing in that way through the course of the day, sometimes the value, the significance of that thought which arose and passed gets, I think, somewhat neglected. So with our thought life and with the observation of our thought life, where thought comes, which occurs in the mind, which we see, yes, I would like to make this change. We're clear in those moments what those changes are and the specifics of them. Sometimes it's changing the fact, sometimes quite dramatic changes we know deep down in our life that we do need to make. And sometimes the change, it can be equally dramatic or reasonably dramatic in terms of the relationship to the fact. The fact of the situation stays, but that we recognise we have to change the relationship to the fact. In, in either case, whether the fact changes or the relationship to, to the fact, I think, when that arises in the mind, let's really give it attention. Don't just say, oh, it's just another thought arising and passing, but really acknowledge that, that there is the, the wish um, and sometimes the urgency to say, things need to change and I need to ensure that those changes are followed through. So the space of the situation here, through the meditative awarenesses, give opportunities for thoughts to arise. Let's make sure that those that we know are valuable to be implemented 
actually are implemented. Now sometimes when we think this way, the, the, the subsequent thought which arises with this, I can't implement this until I've left, until I go back to A, B, C or whatever. But I say, those kind of thoughts to implement change in some expression of it can actually show itself here. If I give a little bit of thought of how can I implement that change which I know would be useful and beneficial for myself or others, for a situation or whatever, what way can that show itself in this situation? So if, if I might say to myself, I'm not going to continue in this work. It's generating harm to myself, harm to the family, harm to society, harm to the environment. It's an intolerable kind of work. I'm, I'm, uh, the thought arises, this has to go. And sometimes livelihood has to be looked at and sometimes has to be abandoned. No question about it. Sometimes one see, sees that, one sees it. If that's there, and that resolution is there, right, one sees one has made that decision here, right, you're unemployed. <laughs> Start feeling this state of being unemployed. Otherwise, the tendency of the movement can go back and for the sake of security, one will exploit oneself and the planet. So I say, in these situations where there's a thought arising, changing the fact, like the, the example of relationships, to the fact, let's see if we can feel what that actually feels like in the context of being here. Let the consciousness get a familiarity. Otherwise, thought will come and patterns will be uh, back the day we leave here with lightning speed. One of the areas, and a very common one, and if I uh, dare to say in uh, North America, more predominant than uh, el elsewhere, that sometimes when a person implements changes in her or his life, in the implementation of them, <coughs> it opens up the space. And one of the most common things that one hears here, and as well as from uh, North American travellers who are on the road, is the, almost the, the mantra of back to school. This, this, <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to do with my life, I don't know where it's going or whatever, so, um, I've got no knowledge, no qualifications, none this, none that or whatever. So the thought arises, back to school. <laughs> but what about regarding it as really back, like a regressive back to school. And so sometimes we use education and we sometimes imagine that education and further education is to cure the problem. Maybe education is the problem. It's contributed to the immense problems of our society and of our, our, our planet. And I think one has to really consider very carefully and, and consciously the relationship of education, the forms of it, the cerebral activity of it, how so easily it's alienated from the deeper things of life. But if we're going to study, what are we going to study? What, what really matters? 
How much ego investment is it? How much is it the desire for money, success, status, security? How, how much of that is really driving oneself into that? What would it be to abandon going back to? And I'm saying this and I'm aware that there's not uh, uh, a kind of social security support uh, system that we have in uh, uh, Britain or uh, much of Western Europe and, uh, and Scandinavia, though our uh, government is doing its level best to deteriorate it as quickly as possible. But still, in any situation where we say, let me come out of the old and let me explore afresh, somewhere in that space there's going to be risk-taking. Somewhere we've got to make some kind of leaps in ourselves to say, what really, really matters? And how can I make it happen? In the old days, if we take the, the little bit of the Buddhist uh, tradition uh, here, and I think some of the original uh, spirit of it, which has uh, long since uh, been forgotten, is that in the original spirit of it, one has then what were called bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Those of you who are familiar with Buddhism will know these, uh, some familiarity with these concepts. Bhikkhu, the original meaning of this is uh, beggar. beggar. Bhikkhunis is a uh, female beggar. And in the original spirit of the teachings which took place, one gave up the pursuit of security as a primary mode for one's living and lifestyle and entered into a way of life which took on board a way of life of awareness and exploration and inquiry and had faith in that as the high priority of life and just finding ways to give support to it. Do you understand? Just to give support to it. So instead of the focus being me making my life as secure and as comfortable as possible, all of that was pushed to the periphery of consciousness and exploration of what it means to live with awareness, devotion, service, kindness, generosity, giving, and all the commitments to others, to the creatures of the planet, to the environment, all of that mattered. That mattered, that was the central uh, function of one's life. And all the other areas of life were simply a support, a necessity that, but not the reason to be. And somehow or rather, and so very, very easily in our life, it, we, we find ourselves at times in a kind of distorted perception of life, where things, where the material accumulation matters more than anything else. So sometimes we, when we speak, and, and I'll take it a little bit further in a minute, but when we speak about spirituality and spiritual practices, then we're asking, as in the talk last night, how much am I willing to really bring these areas into my life? What am I truly willing to sacrifice 
to make that the living present? And these kind of questions in different ways, in different reflections, do arise here. People come and they say in the interviews, they won't say it in a group sometimes, they'll say it in the one-to-one. Um, do you think I should shave my head and um, take coordination? Do you think I should go to Thailand for a period of time or to India? Do, do you think I should just move out of the city and go and live in the desert for a while, in the caves or in the mountains or, or whatever? Do you think I should just take a chance and give up this very nice, comfortable salary that I've got and go and do something which will really lower my standard of living and my partner's standard of living and my children's standard of living. Should I take those kind of risks? And I would say, yes, 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 do it, do it, do it. <laughs> so in our relationship to things and in our, the exploration of, of things, I think all of that is part of what practice is. It's not the work to be comfortable. It's not the work to have life easy for us in which we are quiet, passive, accepting, submissive little creatures navel-gazing. Terrible tragedy when that happens. It leads, very easy, I think it leads to a, a kind of insularity with things. That's why we say, let's bring some awareness and some passion and some vigour into really looking really saying, look, I'm on this earth, I've no idea if I've been born in the past or if I'm going to be re reborn in the future, and I'm not even interested in that kind of past and future. It might be that I'm just living on this earth for a few years, and I come into it, and I go out of it. Right, what is there to lose? What is there to lose in life by taking risk? By pushing consciousness a little bit to the edge and taking it a little bit further? And I think these situations here are one of the ways that we can really push ourselves a little bit further. Really take some risks. Really, really let go of some of our security. And it might be that we'll have to tolerate inside of ourselves some pain, some discomfort, some agitation or whatever, and those kind of sensations. But once faith is in religious life as promised this to us and some of us swear by it that the faith is that if we do it something beautiful will come out of it. Sometimes in the exploration of practice and all that's implied in a, in a liberating way of being sometimes we get become interested in the background to these things, the tradition, the area of, uh, of study, and in relationship to these things. I, I rather got a reminder of this today. I uh, went over with a, a dear a friend of the centre uh, here, who has a number of years contributed to looking after the <coughs> accounts of this place, <coughs> an immensely unenviable task, and he and I took a walk over to sea, as some of you will know, uh, just 15 to 20 minutes walk away from here, a new study centre. And various people of practice who have spent varying lengths of time here 
have uh, put the funds up and with the agreement of, the, of Joseph and, and support and enthusiasm of Joseph and Sharon uh, who are co-founding teachers with Jack of the centre here have uh, in the process of forming this study centre and I understand from uh, Gavin that there is the intention to build a, a large uh, library and to have some study courses in the, some of the scriptures presumably uh, primarily Buddhist uh, scriptures and all of that can be a, a useful and valuable resource for learning. But, but, however, in any kind of focus and exploration, where it in, I think where it involves study, one, as I feel, has to be very, very careful for. Because sometimes, and certainly with, with Buddhism, which appeals, I think, immensely to people, to, I think, to the intelligence inside of uh, people, though Buddhism sometimes is completely unintelligible, and also to the deeper intimations of life. But sometimes, and what the danger of that has been historically, is that it becomes intellectually fascinating, intellectually stimulating. And what one has seen, I think, to do much in the East, and ha having been a person who spent ten years in the East, six years as a, a Buddhist monk in the East, that in a kind of general framework, an overview over the period of time, that sometimes the study began to creep in more and more and more and more. And what was it at the expense of? The expense of practice, of course. Practice is much tougher to really study oneself firsthand than to get the information out of a book. And so the practice began to deteriorate and deteriorate to the point that in some Buddhist countries there's just a few tiny shrinking violets of an oasis. And the, and the rest is surrounded, as some of you know, by the desert of study. And it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. And, I, and, and the Buddha who puts things... I, some people say, I'm blunt, I think he puts it far better than I can. He says in one, pas one passage here, and I think this is for anybody who loves study, whatever it is, and, or reading Buddhist books or whatever, he says, one who studies but doesn't practice. Such a person cannot be said to be a follower of the Dharma, of the teachings, the spiritual teachings and practices dealing with the realities of life. That's the Dharma. One who studies and doesn't practice cannot be said to be a follower of the Dharma. Such straightforward sentence. But what happened historically, and I mentioned this partly because of the slight shadow of that centre nearby, <laughs> <laughs> that a few hundred years later, a person named Buddha Gosha wrote a book called the Visuddhi Marga. It's a kind of huge technical monstrosity. <laughs> and in this huge book, which the Theravadins have uh, 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 worshipped, Buddha Gosa makes this statement and he says there are two types of people who follow the Dharma. One who practices and one who studies. He obviously, since he propounds to be a follower of the Buddha, obviously didn't realise or didn't notice that 
that he's said something to in total contradiction. So again, for people like myself and yourself, in spiritual practices and the, and the application of them and the commitment must be truly the mainstream of things. And in that, then it can embrace other areas of our life, our, our study, our work, our relationships, our, our reading, our knowledge. But if it goes the other way, I think one ends up with a church and one ends up with a tragic deterioration of spiritual life. And these things, I think, have to be looked at honestly and straightforwardly, nipped in the bud, so to speak. Otherwise, in a few years' time, this fabulous centre here could end up as some tragic Buddhist university. And as George Bernard Shaw, one of the great Irish writers, once commented, once commented, and I am sympathetic to the view, he slightly exaggerated it, but I'm sympathetic, when he said, the only time I stopped learning was when I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in our looking at these areas, what we can fall back on, and what changes that we can make in our life, looking very deeply into these things, truly, truly matters so that we're that we have the priorities there for us. But then, there are people, and there are people uh, among you, who, who say, and I know, and who are friends over the years, and friends of the centre, and have tremendous commitment to these explorations of life, will say, I am continuing my practice. I am engaged in practice. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my practice. For those with a small mind, and I mean that, a small mind, person thinks of their daily practice, the small mind will think of sitting in this peculiar cross-legged position morning and evening. And the person will say, well, that's, uh, my, my practice is falling apart. Meaning the person spends, prefers to spend their time in the morning looking in the mirror and brushing their teeth. Which is fine. As long as one sees what the image is in the mind that's generated, it might be more useful than sitting for an hour or so. So again, if, if we have a small view of practice, we'll think of it in small terms. If we have a larger view of what it means, then we're, we won't be so concerned about sitting morning and evening, we'll be much more concerned about what the totality of the day is. What's the totality of your day here? What have you noticed? What, what thoughts have arisen? What thoughts have occurred to you today which you know the wise thing is to abandon them unconditionally not to invest in them. What thoughts have arisen today which say yes, this, these thoughts matter, There's something valid in here and something I want to really apply because I sense that this thought is something really telling me something. The thought doesn't have to have a lot of sensation to it. It doesn't have to have a lot of ecstasy or a lot of intensity. It can be the most quiet innocuous thought, just barely gracing across consciousness, but you've just noticed it enough to say, let me respond to this. Let me make that wise thought, as faint and as vague as it is, let me make that, the presence of it felt in this world. Let me, let me find ways that it shows itself in this world today. Then practice it, practice. Practice means something, it brings something into the world which is beautiful and it's the only true legacy of 
the human experience worthwhile leaving. Not to leave traditions and not to leave lots of knowledge about books and not to be interested in preservation of what's dead, which is the past. But to, to, the, the, the real transmission, the real, I think, spiritual teachings and the best of the tradition is we look, we observe, and the thought that arises to actualize it when it's beautiful. And when it's not, abandon it without any concern. But then a person, as I mentioned, of people. We look at ourselves and our relationship to the world. And one says, here's the present running from the past to the present to the future. And some of you here, a number of you, along with the friendships, are such where one, in thinking about practice, say, well, I am engaged in my practice. And I know many of you have made tremendous changes to, to help actualize the whole sense of what that means in your life. So what easily occurs for us is that there's the sense and the view of maintaining, which is appropriate, the continuity of practice in all the diversities of daily life. One really says that's there. But that's not the heart of the teaching. Maintaining continuity of practice and keeping that flowing, that isn't, that isn't the heart of it. Because what has been said in the present and what the Buddha has said and said so uh, beautifully and poetically is he speaks about the end of practice. What is the end of practice? And I'm addressing this particularly to people who have years of exploration under their belt. Where is the end of practice? And really to understand, what, what, to explore what that means. So when in, the, in, the, in the kind of poetic illustration that the Buddha used, he gives the famous simile of the boat. One gets in the boat and one crosses over the river and one gets out of the boat on the other side and in getting out of the boat, one doesn't start dragging the boat around for the rest of one's life. And he says, the teachings are the boat. So one abandons the teachings, even the teachings have to come to their end. Even the practice is not worth being identified. Even that is to see the cessation, the end of the teachings. What does that mean? What, 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 what would that mean in life? One speaks of the end of the selfishness and the end of greed the end of aggression and confusion and anxiety and all that unpleasantness, the end of ruthless ambition and obsession with knowledge and study and all of those things, and speaks of the end of that and we can say, yes, yes, I can get a sense for coming out of that, liberating myself from that. But in that kind of non-attached way of the teachings, non-attached way, that the teachings tell us even to end what we have been so committed to, Realize the end of the practice. What, what would that mean for us? So sometimes when we stop and we start exploring and, and looking into these things, one says, if there is practice, and one says, I have to see the end of practice. If we, we think of practice, we can't really think of practice 
without in some way, to some degree, thinking of self. The appearance of practice, the manifestation of it, the application of it, in the numerous considerations with it, it does include the consideration of self. An improved self, an evolved self, a developed self, a clear self, a balanced self, a grounded, insightful, whatever form of self it might be. And then we say, but how am I to know when the end of practice is? How am I, to, how am I actually to know that? So sometimes we think, well, something special has got to happen. Something fusing and blowing my mind to smithereens or something, to, some event to take place. When that event takes place, that sensation, that will be the reference point. But I wonder, we hear of people who have these explosions, they appear on meditation retreats, and, <laughs> and sometimes that kind of looking towards, that kind of position in that way, no matter how big the explosion might be inside, how easily everything starts to form back together again. Maybe a little bit less than what it was before, and then one says, oh, got to get back into my practice. Got to get connected with my practice. So I'm not sure if there is any indicator, any real yardstick, which thought can come in and say, this is the end of practice. This is the completion. This is the fulfillment of it. I'm not sure if a sensation in the heart, mind or body is the way that will tell us. So dare we, for those of you here, particularly who have years of exploration under your belt and have many commitments, devotion and service and awareness and inquiry and looking into things, dare one raise the question, what is the end of practice? What is the finishing of all this practice? And to actually allow that question to actually ent enter in, into one's uh, vision, into one's looking. Because if we are, and it's not to be anything abstract in any way whatsoever, if, the, if we're to discuss the end of practice, then that means to the real discussion and exploration of the end of self. The end of self as self-interest. Practice, full practice, relates and feeds back to self. The improvement of self, the betterment of self, the nourishment of self, which is appropriate and fine for people of practice. But the teachings speak about the end of practice. Therefore, the end of all idea of self-improvement and things getting better. The, the, the extinction of all of that construction. So even a challenge to discover and to see the end of the Dharma. Even, even that which we may have committed days, weeks, months, years to, even that is not worth 
investing and promoting and giving the idea of continuity to. I think in the in the in the teachings themselves we speak of the teachings, the appearance of the teachings in our life, the uh, the sustaining and the support for the teachings, and all of that certainly takes place here at uh, IMS and elsewhere, but never to be satisfied with just the beginnings and the middle and the support for. Let's take risks. Let's, let's see if we can discover the end. Let's see, let's leave the boat behind. Then I, then I sense that in that there's some other discovery I'll speak about in a, a other talks, some other discoveries which take place, which don't have any construction or framework to them, have no form, no history to it no past to it whatsoever. And I think as human beings, something other is apprehendable, is realizable, is, can be tangibly known. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be liberated. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?